What are the cognitive deficits that one can see in a traumatic brain injury, which of course is very heterogeneous, so that everybody's gonna have all of these, but these are the kinds of things you can see. Slowness of thought, that's a big one. Things just slow down. Attention and concentration, it's more difficult to concentrate than it was before. Welcome to the New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System Consumer Conference for Persons with Brain Injury. Moving forward, improving emotional, physical, and cognitive health for brain injury. In this lecture podcast, Drs. John DeLuca, Senior Vice President for Research, and Erica Weber, Research Scientist both from Kessler Foundation, presented Cognitive Rehabilitation and TBI. This one-day conference provided individuals with brain injury, their caregivers, family, and friends, and healthcare professionals with information and insight into the strategies to successfully manage a range of challenges that affect overall health, wellness, and quality of life. The conference was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System, a collaborative effort of Kessler Foundation, Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, and Rutgers the State University of New Jersey. The Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System is funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institute of Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, grant number H133A120030. This podcast was recorded, produced, and edited by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Friday, September 27, 2019, at the Hotel Westminster, 550 West Mount Pleasant Ave, Livingston, New Jersey. To listen to more conference podcasts, click on the link in the program notes for the playlist. Dr. DeLuca is the Senior Vice President for Research and Training at the Kessler Foundation. Dr. DeLuca has been involved in neuropsychology and rehabilitation research for over 30 years. He is internationally known for his research on disorders of memory and information processing in a variety of clinical populations, including traumatic brain injury, multiple sclerosis, aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, and chronic fatigue syndrome. He has received over $35 million in grant support for his research. Dr. DeLuca's most recent research ventures include the cerebral mapping of human cognitive processes using functional neuroimaging, as well as the development of a research-based techniques to improve cognitive impairment. Dr. Weber, who will follow Dr. DeLuca, is a research scientist at the Center for Traumatic Brain Injury Research at Kessler Foundation. Dr. Weber is trained as a clinical neuropsychologist and specializes in using cognitive rehabilitation to improve everyday aspects of memory function in individuals after a neurological injury or illness. Please help welcome Drs. John DeLuca and Eric Weber as they talk about cognitive rehabilitation and TBI. Thank you, Dr. Langenfelder, and thank you all for coming today. It really is my pleasure to be here uh, to speak to you, and my role is to talk about cognitive rehabilitation and talk more about the research aspects of cognitive rehabilitation. So I will be showing you slides and figures and all kinds of stuff like you typically do. 
But really the point is, is to get the big idea, the big picture. And the big picture is actually there is research that shows that cognitive rehabilitation is effective in improving cognitive problems after traumatic brain injury. That's the picture. That's the end of the story. Now I'm going to show you the beginning and how we get there and some of the evidence that shows that. And uh, Dr. Weber will be talking more about how do you apply this research in everyday practice. So if I'm in your way, let me know. Sometimes I'm just going to be walking around. Uh, so I'm going to start with just, just talking about what is cognition and talking about its treatment and particularly focusing on learning and memory. And then, you know, can this treatment be effective? So first, a quote. It's much more important to know what sort of a patient has a disease than what sort of a disease a patient has. And I think this is critically important, and this actually drives the research that we do at the Kessler Foundation, that it really is patient-oriented, not disease-oriented. And this quote, of course, goes way back, and it's still applicable today. So what is cognition? Well, the dictionary makes it very simple. You know, this very simple thing. The act or process of knowing. Well, it's actually a lot more complicated. So when we think about cognition, and we want to understand what it is, otherwise we really can't assess it very well. So let's start off with receptive functions, how you receive information from the world. And we do so through sensory input, paying attention, rapid processing of information. Is information coming into the brain? Then, of course, if this information is important, we want to remember it. So we have to learn it, and we have to remember it. And I'm going to be talking about that process of how we learn and remember it, because the process is really what's important. Of course, there are thinking skills then. After we receive information, we remember it, we think about it. So there's mental organizations, there's mental manipulation of information. And then, of course, then once you've thought about it, you do something about what you've thought about. That's called executive functions or expressive functions. Executive functions, you act on behavior. And expressive functions, you express that behavior. And all of these are aspects that are critically important that you can break down what we call cognition. And so these are things that actually can go wrong if you have a brain injury. Um, and so, what are the cognitive deficits that one can see in a traumatic brain injury, which of course is very heterogeneous, so that everybody's going to have all of these, but these are the kinds of things you can see. Slowness of thought, that's a big one. Things just slow down. Attention and concentration, it's more difficult to concentrate than it was before. Learning and memory, learning new information, and again, I'll spend a lot of time on that. But this is a big one that people often miss. Planning, organizing, initiating behavior, planning what you're going to do, organizing what you're going to do, getting things started, getting things going. It's a big thing. <clears throat> Reasoning, problem solving, and judgment. Even if you can get things started and plan, can you think it through? You have the reasoning ability to do that. And can you communicate that information effectively? 
Sometimes it's difficulties in spatial orientation. Did I park in the back or did I park in the front? Did I park in the left or on the right? How do I, how do I get out of the mall? I entered the mall here, but now I'm here. How do I get out? And difficulty recognizing one's own cognitive deficits is a big issue. Because the cognitive deficits can be there, but a lot of times people have a hard time recognizing that. So, and lastly, and not in everybody, but oftentimes you see inappropriate, embarrassing type behavior. That can occur from a brain injury. So these are all kinds of things that can happen and all kinds of things that we need to treat. So what I'm going to talk about primarily is, is um, learning and memory. But I want to first present a, a study to you that we did at the Kessler Foundation, looking at some of the factors that are associated with improvement from rehabilitation. This is general rehabilitation. And here we're looking at cultural issues. Cultural issues. And we looked at functional outcome from, rehab from going to, a, to a, rehab a rehabilitation hospital. You go into the hospital, you leave the hospital, and then we wanted to find out what happened a year later after rehabilitation. We wanted to look if there was differences between persons who were Hispanic versus those who were Caucasian. Simply cultural issues. So we had longitudinal data from the TBI model systems database. For those who don't know, the model systems is a national system of collecting data from persons with traumatic brain injury all over the country, and I follow patients from injury to the rest of their lives. So there's a lot of data. So we were able to look at almost 3,000 Caucasians and about 300 Hispanics, and we looked at outcome. Admission to the hospital, discharge, and follow-up. Okay, so what happens? So here is something called the, the functional independence measure. It doesn't matter what it is. It's a measure of functional processing. And here we have Hispanics and whites. And admission and discharge, there's no difference. There's, you can see improvement from admission and discharge. Higher score is better. But no difference. But what happens one year later? Well, they all improve, but the Hispanics don't improve as much. They don't do as well one year later. Now, they're out of the hospital. What's happening between when they leave the hospital and go home? Another, this is just another measure, a disability scale. Same thing, no difference in admission and discharge. But one year later, everybody's getting better, but the Hispanics are not doing as well as the Caucasians. What's going on? And this is just another way of looking at this data. So follow me on this. Here on the left side is individuals who are doing worse. Here are individuals who are doing better. Hispanics are in black. Caucasians are in white. You can see more Hispanics are doing worse on the worse side, and more Caucasians are doing better on the better side of this. And again, it doesn't matter. You see the same thing no matter how you look at this data, even in community reentry. What's going on in one year? Um, this has really been the largest multi-centered longitudinal study looking at ethnicity and functional outcome. No differences at discharge, but at one year, there's a two and a half times greater chance of Hispanics doing worse than, than Caucasians. The point really here is that a lot of rehabilitation does not end, and it should not end when you leave the hospital. It has to continue afterwards. There has to be continued treatment, and we need a system that can continue to do that. 
And I want to talk about some of the techniques, the research, that can actually provide these services to individuals even after they leave the hospital. So let's talk about learning and memory, because this is where a lot of the research is. And so when we talk about learning and memory, we all know what it is, but let's define it because it's important. Learning is the process of acquiring new information. Remember, you get sensory information from the world, you acquire it. Memory is the persistence of that learning later on. That means I can get that information when I want it. The key here is if you don't learn, you can't remember, right? you need to make sure that you learn to begin with. And that's what we're gonna talk a lot about, is do patients with TBI actually learn? Because when the complaints are, I can't remember things anymore. Well, maybe it's you didn't learn it that effectively. And what happens if you treat learning problems? So, in, well, here's the process of learning and memory. Learning and memory is not a single thing. You can't talk about memory. It's not a single construct, it's very complicated. We talk about the process of learning and memory. The encoding means the sensory information is coming into the brain and is turning into the language of the brain, which is the nerve impulse. So it goes into the brain and becomes encoded. If the information is deemed important enough to remember, and we don't remember everything purposefully, then it becomes what's called consolidated. Consolidation means it gets stored somewhere in the brain. We get the information and we store it. We call that learning or acquisition. And we differentiate learning or acquisition from retrieval. And retrieval is when I now want to get that information back, I'm retrieving it from some storage somewhere. So the idea here is we have, in order to do rehabilitation, we have to know exactly what the problem is. You can't say I have a memory problem. It's not going to help. But if we can say, is the problem difficulty in learning, or is the problem difficulty in retrieving what I've learned? And there are two hypotheses. One is the retrieval failure hypothesis, and one is the acquisition failure hypothesis. And we can test these. So what we've done is a series of studies showing that if we make sure persons with traumatic brain injury learn the information, a retrieval failure hypothesis says, I still won't remember it. But if the patients have difficulty learning to begin with, that supports the acquisition hypothesis. So we ran a number of studies making sure persons with traumatic brain injury learn the same amount of information as healthy controls. Now we can test which one of these is correct. So we did a thing where we, we gave 10 words, uh, and we had people learn these 10 words over how many trials it took to learn. Doesn't matter, just keep going. And here's how many trials it took you to learn, as many trials took you to learn. And then we said, let's look at learning, recall, and recognition. So, here's what we found. Traumatic brain injury took more trials to learn the same amount of information as, health, as healthy controls. Okay, difficulty in learning. We made sure they learned now. Which hypothesis is correct? Retrieval hypothesis says they'll still won't be able to retrieve that information, right? What did we find? Here's 30-minute recall, 90-minute recall. Healthies are in red, TBI is in blue. This is recall of all 10 words. They did exactly the same. This is severe, moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. They did the same as healthy controls at 30 minutes and 90 minutes in their recall of information when you made sure they learned. 
If you look at recognition, that is, did you see this or did you not see this? Same thing. These, they were not showing a memory problem, if you, a, a retrieval problem, if you made sure they learned. That's critically important. That would suggest that the problem is not that I can't remember, it's like not learning it adequately. Now, unfortunately, not all subjects in this study were able to learn. There were some individuals who just had such drastic learning problems that they never learned over 15 trials. You had to stop study somewhere. Uh, so here we have in yellow the individuals who never learned. And what did they do at 30 minutes? They were only remembering half the information compared to 80, 90 percent. But look what happens 90 minutes later. It was gone. They couldn't remember this information because they couldn't learn it. The key then for rehabilitation is to make sure patients learn. Because if they learn, this data says they can remember. And that has driven our research at Kessler and learning and memory from this data right here. This is how research sort of addresses a clinical question and drives the next step into rehabilitation. And this is just tells you that the persons who never learned also had a number of other problems. They had problems in, in, in processing speed, working memory, executive functions, and verbal communication. All those things I was telling you about, receptive and acting on that behavior. So lots of things going on which affect learning and memory. So if we think, if we now know the problem is effective, uh, learning effectiveness, can we then have techniques to make sure people learn? Because if we can make sure people learn, they can remember, as well as healthy controls. So that's what we're going to talk about next. These are a series of studies that have been done at Kessler Foundation to do just that. And before I get into that, I want to just show you that this is a series of papers that have come out that actually look at the quality of the literature. And this, these kinds of papers are saying very clearly that there's substantial evidence to support interventions for attention, memory, social skills, executive functions. And, quote, there is now sufficient information to support evidence-based protocols and implement empirically supported treatments for cognitive disability after TBI and stroke. There's good evidence. But then why do we stop at the rehab hospital? We need to continue even one year later. So let's go through some of these studies. And again, I'm, these are going to be a bunch of studies. But you already know my point, so just follow what I'm showing you. So we did a study here at Kessler uh, that was published in a high-impact journal, which shows that if we train individuals to use imagery when they learn something, so look at a picture, or if we train individuals to use a context when you want to learn something, so not just a list of grocery items, but I'm going to make dinner, and the dinner is going to be roast beef with this and that. You don't have to remember all the list, the 10 items that you want. You remember the concept. And if you train individuals to do that, can they learn better? And we already know from dozens, from decades of research in healthy individuals, this actually improves learning and memory. Well, will it improve learning and memory with persons with TBI who have a learning problem? Well, this is just showing you the, the protocol, it's 10 sessions, two skills are, are taught, imagery and context. And in the end, we teach patients, how do you use it in your life? Everybody's different. So how do you 
do these things in your particular life. Here's what we found. Here's a baseline. Baseline is before treatment started, and the treatment group is in red, the placebo group is in blue. You can see that after treatment, the individuals who learned the behavioral techniques got better, and in the placebo group, they did not. They were able to do this. These are other ways of measuring this. This is just the percent of individuals who showed improvement, and not everybody improves. There are lots of issues going on, but more people improved in the treatment group than the control group, no matter how you looked at it. This just shows you, if you looked at other things like depression and anxiety, which was not part of the treatment, there was no change in depression and anxiety between the treatment group or the placebo group. So the effect was, was, was on the memory and learning itself. Now, we were also able to look at what was going on in the brain of some of these individuals before treatment and after treatment. Well, why is that important? Well, we're not just, we don't want to just show that we're doing, we're providing tricks of the trade. Are we actually changing the brain when we do these behavioral treatments? It's called neuroplasticity, changing what's going on in the brain. And I'm just going to show you brain pictures, because you have to when you give a talk like this. So. <laughs> so these are brain pictures. But the point is that individuals who've received the treatment change their brains compared to individuals. These are areas where brains changed. There was more activation when they had to do a learning and memory task. These are areas where there was decreased activation when they had to do a learning and memory task. So it's not so simple what's going on in the brain, but the point is that we were changing the brain's activity to improve learning and memory in persons with TBI. So that's one way that our research has been providing the rehabilitation world with ways to improve the problem, which is learning. Let me show you some other kinds of things. So this is a, a, a pilot study of a technique called self-generated learning. Self-generated learning. It's a very simple concept. Um, it's also called the generation effect. It's the idea that if somebody comes up with the right answer themselves, they'll remember it better than if I just told you the right answer. It really, it's learning by experience. So if somebody comes up with the right answer in learning something new, we know from decades of research that you'll remember that information better than if I just told it to you. And a lot of times, persons with traumatic brain injury have a learning problem. If you just tell them, they may not get it. Well, have them come up with the right answer. Will that work? Well, we looked at a study, and we looked at, we like to do everyday life kinds of tasks rather than just lists of words and paragraphs and stuff. So we had them do a food preparation task and a financial management task. And we gave them two conditions. We said, in one condition, you come up with the right answer. And in another condition, we'll tell you the answer. We counterbalanced it so everybody has it equal. Either get this one first or that one first. And what we found was here now is the food preparation task on the left, managing finances on the right. We have immediate recall, 30-minute recall, and one-week recall. And the generated group, I mean condition, remember everybody got the same thing, same subject. If they, was, they generated the right answer, it was in blue. If they were told the right answer, it was red. And you can see that 
every time, even up to one week later, if they came up with the right answer themselves, they remembered it better. Remembered it better. And one week later, look at this. The, 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 red, the red portion is getting worse, whereas you're showing maintenance of the information that you self-generated. Self-generated learning, a technique which can be used to improve learning because learning is the problem. How about another technique? This one is called spaced learning. Now this is interesting because we've known about this concept for since 1870. We've known about this for years. This has been studied, there's more than 500 papers on this. Simple concept though, the idea is we can learn things better if, you, if the learning trials are spaced apart than if you cram them all together. So for example, if you're going to take an exam on Friday and you're going to study for four hours, you could study for one hour on Monday, one hour on Tuesday, one hour on Wednesday, one hour on Thursday. Or you could do what we all did in college, crammed Thursday night four hours before, crammed, took the test, and then forgot everything. But we know that if you spread it out, the learning is better. You learn it better and you remember it better. Well, if we already know that, can we teach persons with traumatic brain injury this technique because they have a problem with learning? So what we did was we took an everyday life task. Let's read a newspaper article, okay? And what I want you to do is I want you to read it three times. I want you to read it three times in a row or three times 15 minutes apart. Everybody got both conditions counterbalanced. Sometimes they read the newspaper three times in a row. Sometimes they read it 15 minutes apart. So everybody was their own control. Reading a newspaper article, what we find? Well, at immediate recall, there was no difference. But 30 minutes later, the individuals who read it three times in a row were already losing that information. They're already losing it. Whereas individuals who read it just based apart were remembering it pretty well. It's a simple concept, but it works and can be used in rehabilitation. Research shows that it can be effective. Let me show you another technique that we know, something called the testing effect. So let's say that you're going to learn a new something new, very complicated. Let's say you're gonna, you're gonna learn, I know you guys really wanna do this, like complex mathematical equations. Let's say you're gonna learn something like that. Would you like to have four trials of learning that? I would teach you this four different times. Or would you want me to just show it to you once and you get tested three times? How many want four trials? Because I'll, I'll never get it the first time. How many only want it once but be tested? Okay, most people want it, you know, I, I need, you know, you gotta, go, you gotta show me this over and over again. Well, when, we, when people were asked, like I just asked you, what did they predict? Here we have four study, S means study, four study trials and one study and, and three testing trials. Well, people said, I want it four times. What did you actually find? Well, the individuals who only got it once and were tested three times actually get 50% better because they were tested. And the act of testing draws upon information that's already been stored in the brain and stores it stronger so that you remember it better. It's called the testing effect. Very strong, powerful effect. Can we teach persons with, learning, with TBI who have learning and memory problem to use a technique like this? Well, in fact, in fact, if you look at one-week data, this is healthy controls, 
400% better than just studying four times. This is healthy control. So one week, the, the information stays there. It's, in, it's, it's a phenomenal effect. So can we, can we um, do this in person with a traumatic brain injury? And this is just to show you, we had two groups, of course. These are very severe learning and memory problems. First percentile, median duration of 40, in, in coma, 45 days. These are severe patients. Can we teach them? Here what we have is this. Now, healthies are on the left side. TBI is on the right. Healthies do better than TBI. Okay, we already knew that. Um, the black bar is the studying three times in a row. The middle bar is studying 15 minutes apart or spaced, but just testing is this bar here. And just testing alone is significantly better, almost 100% better by just testing. It's a strong technique. So these are techniques that can be utilized by rehabilitation professionals to help people with traumatic brain injury to learn. Why? Learning is the problem. Um, and again, this is just another study showing a different population of TBI, showing exactly the same thing, that when you do um, testing versus spaced learning or, or, or cramming is much better. And look at what happens. Most individuals remember that even a week later. So those are some, some techniques that come from research at Kessler that are driving how things change in practice because Rehabilitation can't change after you leave the hospital. There's got to be things we can do afterwards. What else can we do? Well, there's a concept called cognitive reserve. What do we got? What time? Oh, I got plenty of time. So we got a concept called cognitive reserve. Do I have plenty of time? <laughs> What's cognitive reserve? Well, stick with me on this one. So persons with higher lifetime intellectual enrichment. That is a lifetime of intellectually challenging activities, intellectually challenging activities. Persons with that can better withstand disease-related neuropathology, like a TBI, without suffering the cognitive consequences. Wait a minute. A persons with high intellectual activity could have a brain injury, and they may not show as much of the consequences than individuals who have low cognitive reserve. That's the whole idea. And, it, and the idea, we've known about this for decades in animal research, for example, uh, we, uh, that, uh, that the brain actually is a, is a changes with experience. Experience actually changes the brain, makes more connections. The cortex, the outside part, important part of the brain, gets thicker. The more intellectual activity, the, the more connections in the brain, and the more resistant to damage. We've known this. We actually know this in Alzheimer's disease. This is a huge, uh, there's a lot of data in Alzheimer's. Individuals with higher cognitive reserve tend to not show the cognitive problems, even if they have Alzheimer's disease, because Alzheimer's disease is diagnosed post-mortem. 25% of individuals with Alzheimer's disease post-mortem, don't, don't have cognitive problems. They didn't have dementia, but they had Alzheimer's disease. So I'll take questions later if you don't mind. So what about TBI? So we did a study in traumatic brain injury. 
is there an influence of prior history of, 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 of cognitive reserve? Does that have a preservation effect on cognitive expression? And here, just look at the right side of the slide, okay? Here we have brain atrophy. We're measuring brain atrophy. Here's low atrophy, here's high atrophy. We're looking at memory performance and individuals with higher cognitive reserve and lower cognitive reserve. With lower atrophy, there's no real difference. But as brain atrophy in, in, increases, the individuals with lower cognitive reserve, actually their memory performance is worse. Individuals with higher cognitive reserve are more preserved. So there's an effect of actually making sure that individuals in their lives live a life of intellectually challenging activities. What does this mean, for example? Well, let's say you've had a brain injury at 18 years of age. Well, what do you do at 18? Well, you drop out of school, perhaps. You become socially isolated. You, know, you don't talk to your parents. Well, you didn't talk to your parents before the brain injury at 18 anyway. Okay. But you do all kinds of things that stop you from building a cognitive reserve. That's the wrong thing. This data says we need to build a cognitive reserve so that when you get older, you may not have such a consequence. So the idea is can we build a cognitive reserve? This is just more data. This is executive functioning. The same thing, individuals with low cognitive reserve get worse with more brain atrophy and um, individuals with, with high cognitive reserve preserve it. Um, so high cognitive reserve can protect subjects from cognitive impairment or cognitive decline. The point here is, can we identify individuals at risk for more cognitive impairment? And even more critically, can we build a cognitive reserve in individuals as they move on through the rest of their lives? Now here's where we need research. There's not a lot of research here on this, but actually this idea of cognitive reserve can be neuroprotective against further decline in cognitive impairment. So what's the potential impact of cognitive rehabilitation? Uh, I want to show you a study done on aging. Now this is not brain injury, this is done on aging. Uh, individuals uh, who are older, 65 to 94, and Almost 3,000 were randomized into three intervention groups, a, a, a memory group, a reasoning group, a processing group, or a control who didn't get anything. Look at the, huge samples, okay? And so they all got cognitive treatment except for the placebo group. And they looked at outcomes from one, two, three, up to 10 years, and now even past 10 years. What are the kinds of things that they're showing? Well, this is looking at processing speed at baseline through the years up to 10 years later. Look at the improvement this group does on processing speed when they get the processing speed treatment. They got a lot better and it was maintained for 10 years. When they got treatment here, they're maintained for 10 years. This is a behavioral intervention. This is not medicine. This is behavioral intervention. If you looked at um, activities of daily living, the processing speed group here is hard to see. The, the treatment groups all got better to compare the controls, but the processing speed group is doing the best 10 years later. These interventions have a long-term effect. 
And what about everyday life activity? So follow me on this slide. This is looking at car crashes, OK? This is actually records of car crashes. Here we have low risk of car crash and a high risk of car crash. This is the control group who didn't get any treatment. And this is the reasoning group and the processing speed group. Look at the dramatic drop in car crashes if you receive this cognitive rehabilitation. You didn't have any car crashes. In fact, or you had car, it was reduced, but it was reduced to the level of the low risk control condition. In fact, the rehabilitation has a real consequence in actual everyday life. This study also showed that the risk of getting Alzheimer's or dementia is reduced significantly by having this behavioral intervention. 78% risk reduction of dementia 10 years later by the behavioral intervention. And how strong is that effect? As an example, the, strong, the effect is stronger than the 20 to 40% risk reduction that antihypertension medicines have three to five years later against a stroke, coronary heart disease, or heart failure. This is a huge effect. It's a behavioral intervention. They can have real consequences. This isn't aging. It's not traumatic brain injury. We'd love to see a study like this in traumatic brain injury. But the point is, cognitive rehabilitation can work, and it can work, and there's treatment after you leave the hospital. However, you'll never see a full-page ad in Time magazine for a behavioral intervention. Just won't ever do it. You'll see plenty of drug studies, you know, have effects. And if you look at those effects, they can be very small. Uh, but these behavioral studies have huge effects, huge effects. And they last a long time. You never see a Time magazine uh, ad for this. How am I doing? Huh? Am I? OK. So, um, so can you do video games? That's the big thing now, video games. Can we just do that? Is that rehabilitation? How many people have gone to their doctor and have said, why don't you go online and do some of those video games? It's cognitive rehabilitation. Um, well, a consensus group among scientists have shown that, in fact, there's no real evidence that these video games can have a true effect. That doesn't mean that there aren't video products that are designed to be rehabilitation products, but video games that purport without evidence, we don't know. In fact, how many people have heard of Lumosity? Oh, yeah. <laughs> One. <laughs> A bunch of people. Well, did you know that Lumosity had to pay $2 million to the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, for deception, false advertising about their, brain, about their video games? And this is a quote, so it's not from me. Lumosity preyed on consumers' fears about age-related cognitive decline, suggesting their games could stave off memory loss, dementia, even Alzheimer's disease, but, sim but simply did not have the science to back up the ads. This is a quote from the FTC. Lumosity uh, claimed that it can improve performance in everyday life, tasks such as schoolwork, that it delayed these cognitive effects such as Alzheimer's, and could reduce uh, health-related conditions such as stroke, traumatic brain injury, et cetera, et cetera. Don't, you don't, you want to believe the science, not the, pardon me? I had good results. You had good results. I'm not saying don't do this because can it build a cognitive reserve? 
Well, that's good. But this point was that there's false advertising. Be careful what you, you pay attention to. So in the end, um, cognitive rehabilitation, of course, works. It, it can really help persons with TBI. We have a good idea from the research that we've been doing at the Kessler Foundation of how to treat, for example, learning problems in persons with, with, with TBI. We know that it has an effect through neuroplasticity that is actually changing the brain. So therefore, if you're changing the brain, it can have a longer-term effect. And by doing that, you can see it can improve everyday life. The idea is if we can build a cognitive reserve, even after a traumatic brain injury, can you continue to build that cognitive reserve? And what's that effect? No research on that, as far as I know. And we need to look at the future at a number of other factors, such as culture. Culture, in our study, had a huge effect on maintenance of, 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 of or continued improvement. Lots of things to look at. And so I just want to acknowledge the people who really do this work, the people who really think about it, people who really bring up the ideas. I'm just the presenter. I'm just the guy who shows it to you. But these are the people who really do the work. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. DeLuca, for that overview on the research side. I'm here to tell you a bit about some techniques that you can walk away today and use. So as I'm going through, I'd like you to think about situations in your everyday life where you might find some of these techniques helpful. I'm going to be focusing on primarily memory, as we know that's something that is often cited as one of the number one problems that people face after a traumatic brain injury. And as we heard from Dr. DeLuca, that most of that problem is based on getting that information in, getting it to stick, so you can pull it out when you need. So I'm going to be talking about both internal strategies, things that you can do to manipulate that information in your mind, how you can change it on its way in, and then also later about some things you can do outside of yourself, external aids and environmental adaptations. So first, I'm going to go through a bit about the modified story memory technique. And Dr. DeLuca talked about this in terms of a lot of our research at Kessler Foundation. This is a technique that has been uh, adapted by Nancy Charavalati, who is the director of the uh, traumatic brain injury system here at Kessler. And this focuses mainly on two main tenets, that in order to improve learning, we need to uh, use context and imagery to facilitate, facilitate learning. So what that does is deepen that encoding. Imagine that you're putting an additional layer of paint on that memory so it becomes stronger and more robust. So you're using imagery, you're thinking about uh, uh, whatever the, the item is that you want to remember in your mind's eye. So you're giving it some more life. And then you're adding context. So I'll be going through a little bit about what this uh, treatment looks like. And to answer the question earlier asked, I know this is something that is uh, presently done at Kessler Institute as well. Um, so the treatment is 10 sessions. It's twice per week for five weeks, about 30 to 90 minutes in duration, depending on the person and the session. So the first four sessions focus on imagery. So the, each person is given a story to remember as a practice example, and they have to remember capitalized words. And they're asked to create mental images of each storyline. So 
things like picture the characters, the setting, where is this happening? Um, and so we're giving you that context of the story, but your job is to put it into images. So here's a quick example. I'll just read the couple, first couple of lines. So Mr. Jones pulled a fresh apple from a tree. This made him think of his childhood summers with the flowers in blossom and his mother churning butter, sitting on a chair, drinking coffee. Okay. Anyone have an image? It may not be your mother, but it might be some mother under a cherry blossom tree with a cup of coffee, but also somehow also churning butter, and there's an apple right above her. So it, once you start to kind of put that image into mind, now you've been able to remember, what is that now? Five pieces of information, five words, that is now a vivid storyline in your head that you can go back to. So the, the guideline that we give patients for imagery is to concentrate on forming a mental image of the chunk of the story and integrate as many of those pieces as you can into one concise image. This way you're essentially remembering one thing, but it's, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck. You're, you're remembering a number of pieces within that. And this way you're transforming that verbal information into pictures. Anytime that you can use more pieces of your brain, more cognitive areas for one uh, task, oftentimes the better. You're basically recruiting more resources. So now you're, you're using your visual information areas as well as your verbal information areas. The second part of the technique is context. So we spend the next four sessions uh, and involving making up a story around a list of words. So uh, similarly, as Dr. DeLuca was mentioning, if you're trying to remember a list of words to pick, of uh, items to pick up at the grocery store, you might think of them in terms of what that recipe is turning into. So you want to create an easy to visualize story, and you're going to continue using that imagery. So for example, if you wanted to learn the words automobile, bottle, cash, and church, you might say, uh, uh, Sunday after church, I need to get my automobile to the bank in order to get cash for a bottle of wine. Typical Sunday. So uh, the guidance, again, is that you're keeping the story simple, you're integrating a number of pieces into one piece of, uh, one chunk of meaningful information. So anyone remember what we said here? Sunday after, I need to take my, to the bank to get for a, as you do. Okay, good. So, um, in context is important here. You, we uh, spend a lot of time helping people uh, practice making good context rather than poor context. So an example of poor context is if you made a story about, if you're trying to remember lawn, sidewalk, and snow, there was snow on the sidewalk next to the lawn. Other than the fact that I just said it out loud so it's easier to remember, but hearing there was blank on the blank next to the blank doesn't really give you much information. However, if you were to use that same example and put a little bit more life into it, and again, thinking about things easy to visualize. So in the winter, the green lawn was covered in snow from shoveling the sidewalk. Once you take those words away, you've still got that picture. You've got the idea of I'm going out for a walk, the lawn used to be green, it's now white, and you can more easily remember what it is you want to remember. 
So uh, that's all well and good for learning these individual uh, practice items, but what we really care about is making sure that these are things that you can put into your everyday life. So the last two sessions, which was actually adopted based on patient and clinician feedback, is that we need to know how to use this in ways that are meaningful to you and I. So using uh, words and uh, tasks that are related to everyday life, words from a shopping list, a to-do list, directions, um, and again, you're always uh, connecting things with context and making it visual, uh, making it easy to visualize. So that's a bit on the modified story memory uh, technique, which is one treatment. Uh, there's a number of other internal strategies, and one other one I'm going to talk about is the method of loci or the memory palace. This is something that people remember hearing about in your days of rehabilitation. Okay, so if not, let me walk through it. So step one, uh, identify a memorable place. So this could be your childhood home, the house you've lived in for the last 25 years, your favorite vacation spot, somewhere where you have a very concrete visual image. So again, we're doing the same thing that we did back in the story memory technique of visualizing and bringing these things to life as we're learning the information. So define a route. Think about that house. Walk yourself through the front door. Hang a left by the stairs. I'm walking through my childhood house. And then around the bend into the kitchen and uh, hang a right to head to the fridge. So familiarize yourself again with what that looks like. And pick specific information, uh, specific locations for you to use. So um, remember that there's the, um, the wood-burning stove in the corner or the fireplace. Uh, the fridge is tucked next to that one's really squeaky cabinet. Things that really bring that to life. Step two, take information that you want to remember and put it in specific areas in that house. So um, one of the things I, I enjoy about this technique is that the weirder, the better. And the more uh, graphic you can make it, or bizarre, or funny, something that's going to make that information stick, that's, that's giving it more life. Again, you're painting another layer of paint on that memory so that when you go to recall it later on, it'll, it'll be more memorable. So let's say you need to go remember grape jelly to pick it up at the store. So what I might do is I might put it in my palace in the kitchen. Uh, you know, I'm envisioning my mom stepping in a pile of grape jelly and she doesn't realize it. So as she's walking by the kitchen sink, now the dog has come up and there's purple footprints on the ground. The dog's trying to lick it off. So now you've got a story, you've got a visual image. It's kind of amusing, at least to me. And that's something that when you go to the store, you can walk yourself now, step three, into or in and around your palace and say, okay, what was in the, oh, right, those footprints, and what was that? Oh, that was the grape jelly, because they were a bright purple. So now you can go through, you have that palace, you're taking that, that strategy around with you. You can add new details into the story, into your, your palace anytime that you have something new to remember. And of course, clean up when necessary. If you, know, you don't need the grape jelly anymore, maybe now peanut butter got a little slathered on it too. Okay, so I'm going to move on to a different uh, type of strategy. So we talked a lot, especially in the, the earlier talk, about internal strategies. Um, but 
we can use the world around us to make our memory lives easier as well. So environmental aids and uh, environmental adaptations. And the one type of memory this is especially important for is something called prospective memory. So that's remembering to perform an intended action at a specific moment in the future, or remembering to remember. So uh, that always has an intention. It's what you need to remember to do. The cue, so when you actually need to do it, a specific time or event and the ongoing task, which is what you're doing while you're waiting to do that task. So what that might look like is, let's say I need to remember to mail a birthday card on the way home. So what is it I need to remember to mail the, the birthday card? What's my ongoing activity? I'm driving home, I have my day at work, and then I'm finally headed in the car on the way home. And then the cue is when I see that mailbox, I need to trigger that memory of, oh, that's right, I have that birthday card I've been hanging on to, I need to pop it in the mailbox. The same thing goes for uh, events that are based on time. So if I have to remember to call the TBI clinic at 11 o'clock on Monday, what do I have to do? Call the TBI clinic. What's my ongoing activity? I'm not sitting there you know, at 10, 15, 10, 20 saying, I have to remember to call, I have to remember to call. I'm going on with my everyday life. I have other stuff to do, I'm having breakfast, I'm at work, I'm running errands. And the queue is time-based, so at 11 a.m. on Monday, that's when I'm going to remember to call. And this is something when people say, my, I, my memory stinks, I always forget everything. A lot of times this is what they're talking about. They're talking about forgetting to do something that you wanted to do. This could be uh, walking into a room, intending to get something and saying, oh, what was that again? Or, um, you know, you really meant to call your, your friend because they just had a, a big event at work and all of a sudden you realize that happened last week and now you, you forgot to call them. So. Ex external strategies are often really helpful for prospective memory tasks. So one way that they could be helpful is that they can, you can use them to offload memory demands. So this is probably familiar to any of you who have gone through rehabilitation and pretty much anyone else. Write it down. The more you can offload that task from your memory onto something else, then the easier it is for you to have it, you know that it is uh, the memory that you intended to remember, um, and also reduces the stress of that, that you might forget it. So um, a lot of you may have used a memory notebook during your rehabilitation days or calendars. Um, additionally, uh, alarms. So while writing it down helps with the what you have to remember, alarms help with remembering when you need to remember. Um, so that could be um, electronic alarms. It could also be people. How many times has someone said, hey, can you remind me to do this? My research systems know I ask them to do this all the time. At our next meeting, remind me to do X. Okay. Can't miss reminders. That's another way in order, if you need to remember to do something, put it in an area where you are not going to escape that task. Um, anyone ever do this? Putting your garbage right by the door. I did this on Tuesday. So uh, it's obvious. You know that it's something that you're going to see. I mean, helps that ShopRite bags are yellow. They're nice and bright. Um, anytime you can make it interactive and tactile, something that you actually end up having to touch and go through, 
then you're sure not to miss it. Um, what's an additional benefit of uh, having garbage right by the door? Yeah. So anytime there's a sensory experience that's also associated with it, if it smells, you're not going to forget it. Utilize habits to help you remember. Um, has anyone ever tried to break a habit? Has it been easy? No. So use your habits for good. If you are really good at always remembering to um, brush your teeth, you know, if you're able to uh, link your tasks together. Um, do something new that you're trying to remember to do with something that you automatically always do. So um, I was trying to remember to take a new vitamin, so I would put my toothbrush on top of it. So I always would interact with it any time that I would do something that was much more automatic. A lot of you might do this with uh, putting your pillbox right by wherever you have your meals. So linking your tasks with existing habits. Another way to do this is to create a home so for objects that you need to remember. When I leave my house, I always count to three that I have my keys, my wallet, and my phone. And those things go in one specific spot. If you have a tray, they're right by the door. There, there are ways that if you get uh, so automatized that so you can always remember to check that one place, the more they're likely to go in that place, the more likely they're not to get lost. Uh, one uh, other way is that you can mix and match these different strategies. Um, a lot of the internal strategies that Dr. DeLuca talked about, a lot of times we're saying, well, let's, let's space out your studying, but also test. So you can combine these things as you need. Um, in this case, I needed to remember to mail a birthday card. Well, I have a little carabiner on my keychain, so I attached the carabiner to the birthday card. This way, I couldn't pick up my keys without, for, without remembering to, to mail that card. So some practical considerations to go through. So act like a scientist. You are the scientist of your old, own world. Collect data. Does this strategy work for me? When does it work? How does it work? Where am I having some trouble implementing this or making sure it's effective? And ask a loved one what they observe. Get their data. A lot of times we do that in our research studies. If any of you caregivers have gotten a form for you to also fill out, we want to know what, what it looks like from the outside world as well. Test your theory. See, maybe this will work better if I, you know, instead of putting the, the garbage uh, on the door handle, I'll attach it over by the dog leash because the dog's gonna have to go out and she'll bark at me so then it'll remind me to go outside to take out the, the garbage. And explore new options. This is a great environment that you all are in today. You're about to go off to lunch in just a few minutes once I wrap up and you can all compare notes. What are strategies that work for each and every one of you? Brain Injury Alliance support groups, any time that you can share what is going to be a good, uh, a good technique, it may not work for that other person, but maybe that might give them enough information to start to figure out what could work for them. And do what works for you and your lifestyle. So are you tech savvy? Great. Use, use an electronic alarm. Do you prefer routine? Then maybe we need to link those tasks a little bit better. If you're always on the go, let's throw a couple of these techniques at you. Um, what works for your significant others? Uh, is there a strategy that you both can use in tandem? Can your significant other test you on that material instead of just telling you it over and over again? 
and what works for your care team? This goes back to the earlier question of if you have access to a cognitive rehabilitation specialist, please use them. Uh, we know that these techniques work, but as Dr. DeLuca mentioned, they're not often fully advertised um, with uh, large pots of money. So, um, so they're things that we have and are available, so please use them. And works, do what works for you and your memory sticking points. You know, um, the saying goes that if you've met one person with a traumatic brain injury, you've met one person with a traumatic brain injury. Everyone is different. Everyone is going to have different problems with their memory or other areas of their cognition. It may change from five years ago to today. So tailor to your own needs and figure out what works for you and your situation at that time. And importantly, don't knock it until you tried it. Uh, give it a chance. A lot of these techniques sound simple or they sound obvious or, okay, well, that works for so-and-so, that might not work for me. Give it a shot. So don't knock it until you tried it. So I'd like to thank the collaborators on this work, um, but more importantly, all of our TBI research participants and patients, um, you guys are how we're uh, doing this work and um, why we, we really do it. To learn more about our research, go to KesslerFoundation.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.